Well, earlier this year, or actually last year, I read uh, the memoir of a Holocaust survivor named Joseph Bao. Uh, Bao was living in Poland as a teenager when uh, the Nazis came in and put up walls around his neighborhood like they did around many neighborhoods in that area and created a ghetto. Uh, it wasn't long, though, until Joseph Bao was put on a train and taken to a work camp. He and all those on the train with him were told by the Nazis, Hey, you know what? We're just going to put you in this work camp, and once Germany uh, wins the war, we're going to release you back to where you were from. And it was an insidious lie. They actually went so far as to make these elaborate passports and documents so that these uh, prisoners, these, these workers, would believe that they would one day be returned to where they were from. But when Joseph Bao got to the camp, he heard rumors of other camps, rumors of death camps. Joseph would notice that one day there would be an elderly person or a sick person or a pregnant person who just didn't show up to work the next day, never to be seen again. He witnessed guards mercilessly killing inmates for any perceived inefficiency or attitude of rebellion. It is safe to say that Joseph Bao and the men and women who were imprisoned with him longed for exodus from their situation and exodus from their bondage. Well, after considerable time, Joseph Bao met Rebecca Tenenbaum, and they fell in love. And even though romantic relationships were illegal and would just get the death penalty, they were so bold that they found a rabbi and were secretly married in the prison camp. In fact, if you watch Schindler's List, there's a little scene where there's a marriage going on in the barracks, and that's Joseph and Rebecca getting married. Rebecca, like Joseph, longed for exodus. She dreamed of being married to Joseph out in the free world, raising a family, having a real life. But inside the camp, Rebecca was employed to do manicures for the sadistic Amangote, who is one of the, the most, most ruthless Nazis in history. He used to hold a gun to her and said, if you even scratch my cuticle, if you make one false move, I will shoot you. But week in and week out, Rebecca would go and do this manicure on Amangota. And by being invited into the inner sanctum of this Nazi prison camp, she met another Jewish person who was Gota's personal secretary. And it was through that secretary that she learned of the existence of this thing called Schindler's List. Now, one day she's walking through the prison camp and she noticed an old woman. In fact, it was the mother of that secretary about ready to be executed by a prison guard. She boldly approached the prison guard and said, I am uh, I'm in with Amangota and you do not want to kill this woman. She put her life on the line. And by doing that, the secretary said, Rebecca, I will give you an extra line in Schindler's list. I will allow you to write your name on that list. So she goes to sign her name, but instead she puts her husband, Joseph Bao's name on the list. He had no idea she was doing this. Weeks later, Joseph Bao was shipped off to a safe camp where Schindler's List people go, and Rebecca was shipped off to Auschwitz, to a death camp. And there she stripped naked, put in a line with all these other women, where she goes before Joseph Mengele, otherwise known as the Angel of Death. She stands before Mengele. Mengele looks at her breast where there's a, a red mark on it and says, You're ill. You're going to the gas line. 
So he sends her to the line where you're supposed to be exterminated. She heads that direction and boldly curves back around and gets in the line again. She comes before Mengele a second time. He's furious. He says, you are ill. Get to the death line. She goes again to the back of the line. Comes before Mengele, the angel of death, a third time. And there provides proof and persuades him that she is not ill. And he allows her to live, and weeks later, the allies rescue her. And eventually, Rebecca and Joseph are reunited and have a long life together. I think that story is absolutely sacred. It's a story of being unjustly imprisoned and humiliated. It's a story of longing for exodus. It's a story of selflessness, of love, of living as faithfully as you possibly can in the worst of circumstances until exodus arrives. And I think it's a story of God's grace. And this evening, we're going to look at the story of another Joseph who lived 3,000 years ago. He was the favorite son of the patriarch Jacob. Joseph had a dream that one day he would be in charge of his whole family, and his brothers hated him for that dream. So Joseph's brothers conspired against him and sold him to slave traders. He ends up the slave of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. And we learn that God is with Joseph even in his slavery and that Joseph prospered in all that he did such that Potiphar put Joseph in charge of everything of his day-to-day dealings. Joseph was the man. And then Potiphar's wife begins to make romantic advances toward Joseph. And when he refused, time and time again, she got fed up and finally screamed and lied and declared that Joseph was trying to rape her. It is to this story that we now turn. And I want to invite you to stand as we pick up the story in Genesis 39:19, And I'm going to read through chapter 40. Now when his master had heard the words of his wife which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him in jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. Well, then it came about, after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream each the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. 
Then Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them. Behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, We've had a dream, and there's no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And it was budding, and its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this house. For I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I've done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that he interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head, and in the top basket there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating from them out of that basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said to him, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head off of you and will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Father, uh, I know there are times when we have felt forgotten. I know there are people here this evening who feel forgotten, who wonder where you are. And Lord, I pray that through your word this evening, you would come and comfort, that you would come and remind us of your presence, of your goodness, of your grace, and that you would release captives this evening. Amen. You may be seated. So this is getting old, isn't it? Yet again, Joseph is wronged. Once again, his life seems absolutely out of control. First, he's sold as a slave. Then he's like, okay, I can accept that. And he gets really good at his job. He's put in command of all Potiphar's stuff. And now he's falsely accused and demoted to the prison. But even there, we learn that the Lord showed kindness to Joseph. And as Sarah pointed out last week, this word uh, kindness in Hebrew is Hesed, which is God's covenant-keeping love, his loyalty, his I'll stick with you even when you fail me kind of faithfulness. Wherever Joseph goes, the Lord prospers him. 
And I'm not sure if you noticed this detail, but the chief jailer works directly for Potiphar. Joseph, it says, does all of the things that the chief jailer does. So basically, Joseph is still working directly for Potiphar. Isn't that crazy? In fact, we know from ancient laws and customs that rape, adultery, or attempted rape would carry the death penalty. So it's almost as though Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph. Potiphar knows there's no way he did this. My wife's kind of nuts. But to save face, right, he has to do something with Joseph. So it's like he demotes him from the executive office down to the mailroom. But Joseph is still running everything in Potiphar's house down in the mailroom, if you get my, my drift. Like he's in the prison. Well, whatever the nuances of the case, Joseph is once again in a position of leadership. And as we're going to see, he's in a position of influence as well. Enter the cupbearer and the baker. Now, these men may not seem important, but they were daily in the presence of Pharaoh himself. The cupbearer is basically the head butler. So you could think butler when you think cupbearer. He would have made sure that Pharaoh's cup was free of poison, of course, and would have been right at his side. But he was basically in charge of all the household domestics. He was right there with, with Pharaoh. So like if you're, uh, if you're Downton Abbey fans or whatever, it's like you know, the, the main butler, how close he is to the head of the house. That's like the cupbearer, right? He's a man of influence. Likewise, the baker was in direct con contact with Pharaoh. Now, many of you uh, probably think of pyramids, mummies, right? Hieroglyphics when you think of Egypt. But many people don't know that the Egyptians were actually foodies as well. Uh, the, the food channel would have gone over big 3,000 years ago. And we have these dictionaries that archaeologists have found that show there are over 30 different words for bread. In Egyptian, and there are 57 different types of pastries that were a big deal. So uh, the baker is a pretty big deal. And the point is, though, that the baker and the cupbearer have this direct line. They have the ear of Pharaoh. They were more influential than Potiphar was. Potiphar probably never even talked to Pharaoh unless he was in trouble for something. So though Joseph seems to be getting a demotion. He's actually closer to influencing national policy than he ever was before. Well, of course, he doesn't know this. He doesn't know this at all. All he knows is that he's now the personal assistant to two Egyptian prisoners. Now think about this. Joseph is a Hebrew slave. He's been unjustly treated. For all he knows, his life is completely ruined. And now, he's here to serve two Egyptians who used to live the plush life in the palace. These two prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker, represent the very empire that is oppressing Joseph. Joseph, though, is an amazing man of integrity. So one day, he goes to the cupbearer and the baker, and they look distraught. Again, you know what? He could have totally ignored them. He could have secretly relished in the fact that these two soft Egyptian palace people are having a hard time in prison. Most of us would probably take that tack. But instead, Joseph shows compassion. He asks, what's up? Why are you so distraught? What's wrong? What's troubling you? He takes time to listen. And I wonder, as a side note, how good are we at that? taking time to really listen, even to the people we claim to love, let alone our enemies. 
Well, the issue is that these two men have had dreams. Not a big deal, at least to me. Uh, I had dreams last night. You probably had some kind of dream. Uh, But in the ancient Near East, people believed that when you went to sleep, that your spirit, your mind, whatever, the intangible part, the the non-physical part of you, breached a barrier into the place where the dead lived and into the place where the gods held sway. And they believed that dreams, vivid dreams, were gifts from the gods. And they would tell you things about your life in the physical world. And the Egyptians, like many other cultures in that time, had their specialists to interpret dreams. Uh, They had people that that was their job to interpret dreams. They had volumes and volumes of books that would tell you that this symbol in your dream equates to this reality in the real world. But being in prison, the cup baker, or the baker and the cup bearer, have no access to these experts. They have no access to these special books, and so they're distraught. Now, we don't know exactly what, co- what crime they committed. If they had actually been convicted of treason, they would just be dead. So we know they weren't convicted of treason yet. But maybe there was a conspiracy theory, and Pharaoh was waiting for more evidence or something, puts them in jail to wait for this evidence to shake out. Regardless, Joseph answers them both with faith. Don't interpretations to dreams come from God? Tell your dream to me. There's Joseph longing for Exodus. He does not like being there, guys. I mean, he's longing to get out. He's betrayed by his family, sold as a slave, imprisoned on false charges, and yet he is God's man in this situation for such a time as this. He's got no special books, but he knows that God is with him. He has faith, and he practices that faith. He acts with God before he can see the outcome. And he's a blessing to others. He listens to the cupbearer's dream. And I just encourage you to go back some other time and pay attention to these dreams and the repetition of the word three and the themes of three. It's a fun study to do. But God gives Joseph the interpretation, and it's a good one. In three days, the cupbearer's head will be lifted up. That means, you know, when you go before the king in a penitent way, you come like with your head down, you're bowed before the king, and he lifts your head up and restores you to your position. So that's, that's what's going on in the cupbearer's dream. He's going to be acquitted of the charges against him. And at this point, I wonder how Joseph is doing on the inside. Here he is, used again by God as a blessing to many other people. But what about the dream dreamed over him? How did he interpret that dream? Did he get it right? Walter Brueggemann comments, that God is with Joseph does not mean private comfort. You might want to fill your name in there. That God is with Chris Eldridge does not mean Chris Eldridge gets private comfort. doesn't mean that necessarily. That God is with Joseph does not mean private comfort. Rather, it means that even in Egypt, the dream dreamed over Joseph will move according to God's sovereign purposes. We see this tension when Joseph begs the cupbearer to show him kindness. Literally, hesed. 
Yes, of course, Joseph is being used by God to the glory of God, but he's also longing to get out of there. He's in this tension of God is with me, and yet I'm not fully delivered yet. You know what that feels like, right? We're going to come back uh, to that theme in a little bit, but let's finish the story first. So the baker, seeing the positive interpretation of the cupbearer, now goes to Joseph and tells him his dream. And again, his dream is dominated by threes. And again, a decision will be made in three days. And similar to the cupbearer, the baker's head is going to be lifted up. But unique to the baker, it will not only be lifted up, but lifted right off. And of course, there's these graphic details of what the birds are going to do to his corpse. And sure enough, in three days which is either Pharaoh's birthday or the anniversary of his uh, coming to the throne, he restores the cupbearer and executes the baker. And it all happens according to Joseph's interpretation that he received from God. And I can't help at this point to think that Joseph's spirits must have been so lifted. It worked, God, you used me. And the cupbearer is going to be back right with Pharaoh. And I'm sure he's going to put in a good word for me. I'm sure Pharaoh will see my value. Surely I deserve to be restored. I'm voting for Joseph there. I mean, it makes sense to me. But the last words we hear are these. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Joseph's words in verse 14, get me out of this house, along with Joseph being forgotten, foreshadow the first chapter of Exodus. Again, Brueggemann muses, the butler forgets Joseph now, even as Egypt will forget him later. Joseph is left with this question, is there a remembering done by Yahweh beyond the forgetting of the empire? Joseph does not know. The butler does not care. Of course, you and I know the end of the story. We know how in God's timing, Joseph ascends to a position of power where he's going to glorify God and rescue the known world. Ta-da! But that's the stuff of next week and chapter 41. And I think it's a good discipline for us to live in chapter 40, to feel the tension, because that's where most of us live. Most of us live chapter 40 lives and not the crescendos of chapter 41. Each one of us has either felt in prison to sickness, to a pattern of sin, to a family history that we can't shake, each one of us has longed or is longing for Exodus. And even uh, if everything is going fine in your life, if you're honest, you recognize the brokenness of our world and the pain of the people in your life. And we long for rescue, for Exodus, for renewal. And in fact, the Bible says it is good to long for Exodus. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There, there's something holy about recognizing that this isn't all there is, thank God. So, is there any good news in this passage? Is there any glimmer of hope 
when we're longing for Exodus? Well, of course, I believe there is. That's why I'm preaching this. <laughs> Our scripture reading from earlier uh, was from the book of Hebrews. It explains that in former times, the only way the people of God heard the voice of God was through his words to particular patriarchs or through certain prophets or through an occasional vision or dream. I quote Hebrews here. But in the last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of all God's glory. He's a reflection of God's glory. He's the direct representation of God. And the word here used behind the English representation is the Greek character. It's the word that was often used in reference to a process in which coins were made in the ancient world. In the ancient world. So a Roman uh, emperor would put the character of his image onto a coin. And that coin would go around the empire and would remind everyone as they're doing their daily uh, selling and bartering and, and trading that... The emperor is in charge of all of this stuff. His direct impression is on the coin. Similarly, Jesus is the exact character or impression of God the Father. But Jesus is more than simply an image of God. He's the very essence of God. And that means that when you see Jesus in the scriptures, when you learn about the things that he says and the things that he's done, when you see how he interacts with all kinds of different people, in His mercy and His grace and His compassion, His boldness, His intelligence, all of those things, you are seeing God the Father. And why is that good news? Because we know what Joseph never could. We know Jesus. We know how He lived. We know what He did. We know the character of God through the character of Jesus. And when we read the story of Joseph back through the lens of Jesus, we can see the good news. We can see the fact that God has not forgotten Joseph. He did not forget the people of Israel. Actually, we can see all that without Jesus, but check this out. Through the lens of Jesus, we can see that all this is foreshadowing of the greatest exodus. We know that whatever pit we are in, he sees us, he knows our pain. Whatever prison has you shackled, has you managing your life rather than living it, have you ever felt that way? Stumbling through instead of abundantly living? Jesus knows it. He remembers. Jesus does more than see and remember. Of course, he died and rose again. For your freedom and for mine. He died and rose and reigns so that we might have the promise of liberation from our prisons of sin and the sentence of death. We are not forgotten. Amen? The story of Joseph teaches us something else when we read it through the lens of Jesus. I think it gives us a paradigm of discipleship, a picture of what it really means to follow Jesus. We now live 
in the tension of longing for exodus on one hand and the promise of rescue and new life on the other. And it seems to me that most of us have a hard time living in that tension, that we favor one of two sides. First, some of us take the view that all we can do is put our heads down, get our nose to the grindstone, and just trudge through life. It's the attitude of life sucks and then you die. It's fatalism. There's little hope in that view for the present. We're merely actors in a play that's already written and we feel powerless. And if you're too focused in that mode of life, you either get cynical and discouraged or you develop a messiah complex where you think you, by your hard work and effort, are going to fix stuff. You're going to make the best of it. The second view is that of such longing for the future, such obsession with Jesus' return and new creation, that we fail to engage in the life right around us. Pie-in-the-sky people live so much in the future that they fail to live in reality. You simply cannot be salt and light and loving and encouraging, uh, uh, engage in authentic worship if your head is in the clouds. If you don't recognize the bars on your own cell, the shackles on the neighbors around you, the taskmasters over your head, you won't be able to reflect God's kingdom. Both these views are flawed. We see in the story of Joseph, through the lens of Jesus, the need for a creative tension between longing and living. It means we're going to be willing to engage the brokenness of the world because we'll have genuine hope for Exodus. After all, we follow a Lord who teaches, in order to have real life, you need to die to yourself. We follow a Lord who practiced what he preached, who gave up his own rights and privileges in order to save us. And it was through the humiliation and death of Jesus that he became exalted. This pattern of discipleship is followed by Peter and Paul and men and women throughout the years, the centuries of the Christian church. The Joseph story, through the lens of Jesus, reminds us that even if the world has forgotten us, God remembers. Even if we feel that the little choices don't amount to much, Jesus will make much of them. And it leads me to my final thought. Since we have heard the good news that we're not forgotten, I wonder who else in our lives needs to remember that, needs to know that maybe for the first time. And so I ask you, who have you forgotten? I want to encourage you with this action step this week. I want to encourage you to make a call or send a card or make a visit to someone who God has put in your life that maybe you've forgotten. Here's some simple suggestions. Uh, a number of you uh, uh, sponsored kids through Covenant Kids Congo through World Vision. Maybe it's been a little longer than you'd hoped that you've written your child. I want to encourage you. Send that letter. You can even do it on email now and they, they write it for you on the other end. Maybe there's a friend or a relative. Those, man, relatives are tricky, aren't they? And maybe there's somebody in your life that you've kind of written off. Maybe they're hard to get along with. I would encourage you. Is this someone that needs to know that they're not forgotten? 
Maybe it's someone in this very congregation that you just haven't seen for a while. And you always wonder, well, what would happen to so-and-so? What would it do for their hearts if they got a, a note from you or a call from you? You have received the hope of the liberator. Who can you share that hope with this week? Let's pray. Lord, we see these ideas, these themes throughout uh, the story of Joseph, that you are a God who remembers, that you are a God who sees, that you are a God who intervenes, who wills the best for people. We've even heard that you feel that way about us. Lord, I now pray for the miracle of you taking that information, that good news, and that you would activate it in our hearts, Lord. Lord, so often we think these truths are real for everyone else but besides ourselves. So I pray for everyone who feels trapped, who feels locked in a cell, who feels forgotten. Lord, that you would show yourself in a fresh way this week. Show yourself faithful. Show yourself just. Show yourself with us, God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.